0: I'm Davy Pillay. I am Arkady Martine's editor, and I'm here to chat with Arkady about A Memory Called Empire. Hi, everyone. Arkady, it is lovely to see you as ever. Hi. Nice to see you, too. How's it going? It's going pretty well. I have a lot of questions for you from our awesome audio team, and I thought we could start out with a really, really easy one. Oh, no.
1: (laughs) See, it's never a good idea when you say that. <laughs>
0: I, the first question was, like, awesome. And I was like, oh, this is totally an easy one. Arkady will love this. Uh, what was the most difficult part of writing A Memory Called Empire?
1: Oh, my God. That's not an easy question. I know. that's uh, why awesome. I have, like, pat answers, which is there are too many words in books. I don't like it. They take a long time to write and you have to sort of remember (laughs) to keep going. But I think the actual hardest part was probably, I got stuck in the middle. Um, In a place that is now, I think at the end of chapter 10, it wasn't chapter 10 when I got stuck. Um, And I just could not figure out how to start unwinding the tangle of threads I had built. I knew where I was going, but not what to pull first and how to start the cascade down to the end. It's about halfway through the book. I got stuck for a good three months, actually.
0: Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) Are there characters in Memory Called Empire that are similar
1: to those in your life? Yes. And this is the... Okay, so the semi-embarrassing thing is how much I based Three Seagrass on me, age 26. I love it. Which says incredibly unflattering things about me. Um, and probably flattering things about her. I don't know. Um, but that kind of forward momentum, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, oh God, what did I do? In With the obsession with clothes and language and nasty politics, that's pretty much me at 26. Uh, and writing her is a breeze because of that. Mm-hmm. The other characters... I think I I don't build characters that are one-to-one maps to anybody, but I definitely see aspects of different people and think, okay, that's a really neat way of being, or that relationship between those two people is fascinating. How would I write that? And then I borrow those, I think. So like writers. a little piece here,
0: a little piece yeah. there sort of thing. I love it. Did you expect the book to have such an incredible critical response? The answer is yes. No. Yeah, totally.
1: Really? You did. You did. Oh, editor who bought the book. Um, I've been continuously and delightfully surprised Um, because I wrote it for like Mm -hmm. to see if I could. I think you told me when we
0: bought it that you wrote it for your friends or something.
1: I wrote it for like me and for the people who I hang out with, like in the writer world. I wanted mm-hmm. them to read a story I'd written, but I, and I wanted it to be published because it would, I was proud of it and I wanted to share it, but I never expected the magnitude of the critical response. I just want you amazing. to remember
0: that when we bought this book, I believe I told Dong Wan, your agent, uh, that, oh, when this one's a Hugo, we're going to see it move real hard, you know. Do you remember that? I was like,
1: <laughs> okay, boom. okay. You're right. I, I, I promise that at least for like the next couple of books, I won't doubt you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My ego loves you.
0: Uh, did hearing someone read your work change the way you think, feel about your
1: books? Actually, no. Um, I love the audio. I think it's amazing. Uh, I feel really lucky with the way it's been written. But I also read my own work aloud a lot, like at readings, and I love doing that. I am I kind of have a performance background. So hearing someone else read it, the emphases are all mm-hmm. different. And that brings a really neat interpretation. So it's slightly different from the way I would do it. And I kind of love that. Um, but when I write, I write with a lot of attention to sound pattern and how it would sound spoken. Mm-hmm. So... I think I was expecting that um, from an audiobook, so it wasn't really surprising to Got me. It.
0: And I think the next question I think is related to that, like, how does it feel to have someone else read your book and bring your characters to life? Do you think
1: that's... In this particular case, great, because it's a great audiobook. I have had, I think everyone who has had a lot of different recordings, um, I've had podcast recordings of stories, short stories that I've liked less. But that's just how it goes Um, for all the work that we do as writers trying to get sentence rhythm and pattern to come forward. Every reader and every speaker interprets it through their Mm -hmm. own lens. And sometimes that interpretation is not as close as this one. (laughs) This one really is very close. Um, So it's been a pleasure. Uh, When you write,
0: do you imagine your character's voices in your head? Hmm
1: kind of I think I imagine like cadence Mm -hmm. and what kind of vocabulary a person would use and like whether their voice is gruff or fast or breathy that kind of very general description but I don't always or very much really have like a a voice image for a character um, I'd know what if one was wrong. Mm-hmm. Like in the second book, um, 20 Cicada is definitely a tenor. Having him as a, a very low voice would feel wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's, I guess, I imagine what part they'd sing in a chorus or an opera more than I imagine what they'd sound like speaking. And I think that has to do with some of how I think about plot, because I always think about plot as music. Um, Very interesting. Does this voice come forward mm-hmm. at what point? and then voices have qualities to them? So and the performance background I mentioned is my my whole family are classical musicians, except for me. So I grew up listening to opera, and I think about it a lot. Are you an audiobook or podcast listener
0: yourself? What are some of your favorite audiobooks or podcasts to listen to?
1: I am less of one than I'd like to be. And I feel like my answers here are going to be really, really old school because I used to have a longer commute. And that was when I listened to podcasts and audiobooks much, much more than I currently do. Um, so like really old school, I, I was super into Welcome to Nightvale when that was on. And God, I love that. Um, and similarly, Steal the Stars, which like made me cry in a bus stop. Um, and that's hard to do, both crying at all and also in public because uh, and in terms of like non-fiction podcasts i tend to gravitate towards ones that talk about craft of some kind i really loved um i only listened to the mountain goats which is a music podcast um, about the mountain goats but also about a lot of other things related to the songs and the recording process and the thinking in that band. Um, and that's kind of my favorite kind of podcast. You like to
0: see the taking apart kind of thing.
1: Yeah. What's behind the scenes. And conversations between people. Mm-hmm. Um like I really enjoy hearing people talk about their own work or how someone else's work works. That's neat. Um when I want to like find out something like something informational I'll probably read print books because it's faster.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Uh, what do you look for in an audiobook narrator? Flexibility, I think. Like I want every character, not like necessarily like doing voices or something like that, but I want every character to feel distinct. And that doesn't mean that the voice actor, the audiobook narrator has to change how they naturally sound. But each character should have a sort of differentiation from the others. Um, I also very much like collective audiobooks, where you have Mm -hmm. a lot of different voices all together, like a radio play. I think that's neat. How do you think narration can enhance your story? So storytelling is originally so much of an auditory and an oral tradition. So the fact that we have this huge and important part of the industry of books, which is oral storytelling, is something that I just think it's cool, first of all. And second of all, I think it makes me as a writer think more about where I'm putting breaks in sentences, where I'm putting breaks in paragraphs, how I can mark on a page What I want a narrator to do, Um, if I want a really sharp break before a new paragraph or a new thought, how will I convey that so that the narrator definitely does that? Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think, makes me a stronger writer because the reader, many readers at least, hear inside their heads the words. And if I'm signaling them properly so that a narrator could do it, then I'm signaling them for the reader too.
0: That's a great way of thinking about it. Uh, are there any Easter eggs foreshadowing hidden references or anything within a memory called Empire that listeners may have missed on their first listen through
1: pay attention to the chapter epigrams um I think most of the really egregious Easter eggs are in the second book so you'll have to listen to the audiobook for a desolation called peace to find the really obvious ones um like the bit where I parodied leverage and the where I stole a sacred harp song and rewrote it but there are several of those they're hidden all over the place I really enjoy doing tiny tiny like you don't need to know but if you know it's fun did you have to
0: teach the narrator how to pronounce certain words in your book and how did you go about it
1: I was asked to provide pronunciations, and I, being the complete nerd I am, made a chart in IPA of how to pronounce everything. And then I think most of that chart ended up in the back of the book. Um, But I've also made recordings of some of the harder words and sent them. And in doing this, discovered that some of them are really, I should have picked a different made-up word. This is a bad made-up word. Um, <laughs> no one can say this. If I can't say it easily, then it's really a problem. Um, I mean, some of them I, I think people find hard, and I don't like it. Texkela that one isn't so bad for me. But I named, like, ship sergeant something like and that's really hard. Um, Maybe I should have thought
0: about that a little more. (laughs) I think as a reader, I tend to recognize the word. I rarely pronounce
1: it. And
0: that's how I glossed over that.
1: Yeah, I think most people do that, actually, when they're reading, because you get that visual, like it's a visual signal. Um, I was saying before about how a lot of readers hear words, but I'm not one of them. Mm -hmm. I don't actually hear words as I read. I sort of like experience them. um mm-hmm. in big chunks like a whole sentence at once that all of the meaning right there um so it's not separate and I think words in a language that you don't know mm-hmm. often just become like pictures yeah image patterns that have a meaning
0: what is your writing process like are you a detailed planner or do you prefer to wing it do you write in order Arkady
1: I, I write in order but I don't outline um, so I tend to not be able to outline well because I don't know how the book will feel at a certain point, which sounds so wishy-washy. But it's really true for me. If I like start with a very distinct and then this scene and then this scene and they'll have a conversation about this, which results in that, I feel like I'm like feeling around in the dark and just... Randomly picking things, and I don't know if they're right. And I can lock myself into the wrong sequence very easily. So for me, stories grow out of the previous bits that have been written, um, and they move forward in usually one direction uh, towards the end. But I don't necessarily know how to write a scene that I may know happens in the middle. Until I've written all the way up to that scene. But this kind of only works like per point of view. When I was writing A Desolation Called Peace, which has four points of view, I figured out that it was possible for me to write all of one character's scenes until they needed to interact with other characters who had point of view um, and just keep going, even if those weren't continuous in the actual printed book. Did you have a hard time in terms of weaving
0: back and forth and knowing when to switch?
1: I had a harder time in edits than in original Mm -hmm. composition in figuring that out because it's really a pacing question. Mm -hmm. Like who do we need to be looking at and how much of this character's arc needs to happen before I interrupt it? Mm -hmm. And like, where does the interruption feel like it's contributing and where would it be like um, delayed gratification for the reader? So it wasn't difficult to put together probably because I put it together wrong the first time and also the second time. Um, And trying to figure out how to, especially at the end, because my books tend to have fairly rapid cascade failure climaxes. (laughs) So everything kind of happens at once at the end and knowing where to switch so that the tension stayed at the level I wanted was something that took me a while.
0: Out of curiosity... Was your favorite part of writing the book, naming the
1: characters? One of them, yes. Because the names are so fun. I like naming characters. It's Mm -hmm. often the Mm -hmm. first thing I do in a book. Um, And it's definitely something that I can get stuck with. Like if I can't find the name for a character, they're not really real. Mm -hmm. So I can't write about them because I don't know what they're called. Because what people are called matters. Um, in the project I'm working on right now, I've known the main character's name since I conceptualized the project, but figuring out what other people call her and when has been a really interesting experience um, and actually gave me some plot. Oh, interesting. there's only one person or one sentient thing that calls her by her first name. I'm
0: so curious ever. now, Arkady. Uh And related to that, what is the favorite part of your own writing? Because I got you sidetracked on names. Let's see.
1: Sometimes I, it sounds kind of arrogant. Sometimes I write a sentence I really love like (laughs) linguistically, like I get it right. And I know I get it. I've gotten it right. And it's incredibly satisfying when you find a way to say in either a simple manner or a lyrical manner or both at once, if you're really good, exactly what you meant. And you know that that's the the line that the chapter or the story or even sometimes the whole book is going to rotate around and that moment is worth a lot
0: (laughs) does that happen frequently does that happen infrequently is that like the first sentence
1: infrequently um it's it happens more than once in a book usually but it's certainly not an everyday thing it's a it's a gift when it happens. I mean, not like it comes from some outside place. I, I did it, but it's like, oh, okay, I was in the right place to find the right words today.
0: Do you find that when people are quoting or telling you their favorite parts, that's one of the
1: lines that comes up? Often, yes. Um, but sometimes there are lines that I didn't expect that end up being the ones that people pass around. Mm-hmm. And
0: related to the naming con- uh, conventions, how did you go about naming characters and places in your story?
1: Um, It's a very elaborate answer, really. There's two whole different naming systems. And one of them um, for my protagonist's culture, uh, which is LaSalle Station, a lot of the names come from classical Armenian sort of spun through a bad Google Translate a couple times sometimes um, to make it not the real thing or something that could be thousands and thousands of years of linguistic evolution. And for the other culture for texcalan the language is based on um, mostly on Nahuatl, and partially a little bit on Greek and Hebrew, because those are the ones I know better. And for the names I tended to go for, I'm going to look up in a N'hathal dictionary, something kind of like the thing or like for scientists um, the, the word for like people who have their equivalent of PhDs is actually based on the word for spear. So like the front part of the spear, like the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was like the metaphor. And then I built the word out of a sort of concrete version of the metaphor. You can see how this gets really fiddly, really fast. But in terms of naming people in Texaclan, everyone has a number and a noun. Um, and that's, a uh, basically to describe the culture, and also because it gave me some really fun ways of playing with the culture where the reader could see Um, that in a very early part of the book, there's a character unfortunately named um, 36 All-Terrain Tundra Vehicle. Um, And the fact that that is a perfectly legal name but also a very funny one. Let me tell readers a lot about the culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's kind of the equivalent of naming your kid moon unit. Like why you could do that. Why would you do that? (laughs) I think that is amazing.
0: I love the naming in the book. It's one of my favorite parts. Uh, What draws you to writing science fiction and how did you come up with the technologies such as the imago that are included in your work?
1: I write science fiction when I'm not trying real hard to not write science fiction. Like, this just happens. This may be one of the reasons that I am no longer a professional academic. Instead, I wrote a science fiction novel about my postdoc, um, which is kind of where a lot of this comes from. But uh, I love science fiction. It's kind of my native language. It's the way I think about the world, like, given this scenario, what would happen? And I always think about the science and science fiction is not just being like physical or biological sciences. Those are awesome and really fun, but social sciences are the kind of science fiction I'm super interested in. Mm -hmm. Like what do societies look like under very unusual conditions? What happens to people if you put them in a extremophile situation? Um, And also just the idea of like, technology as techne as skill um and that's not just like particle physics but also rhetoric
0: i love it um because so much of that just comes through your energy and your love for it you know in the book it's so amazing you. uh what would you like listeners to
1: take away from the story i think i'd like listeners to take away that things are complicated and that there aren't necessarily easy answers and that people are complicated and what people want is both genuine and sometimes wrong and those two things don't cancel each other out. Um, And just that there aren't simple answers. I mean, that's very sort of like moral lesson. I also want people to have a good time. I hope they have a good time. I hope they find that the story has an arc that is compelling and sticks with them. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, after, I don't even know how many years ago I read Memory Called Empire, but. You read
1: it in 2017 the first time. 2017. I know, right? How long ago was that? I don't even know. And you read the version that was like a straight up Le Carré novel. And then like without all of the world building in.
0: <laughs> I just, you know, the funny thing is there are certain scenes that still stick with me to this moment. Like when she comes to throne. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, I want to say it's the lotus throne, but I know that's not it. But the flower that opens up where the emperor is, uh-huh. it, you know, and the scene at the end, which I will not reveal for those that haven't read it um, with the emperor. And it's so visceral. Like it is one of those things that you, you know, you hear it, you read it, and it stays with you.
1: For me, obviously, for years. I'm incredibly glad about that for a lot of reasons. Um, but mostly because I really, I write with a lot of complicated and sometimes very lyrical prose Mm -hmm. and the fact that I've apparently done it well enough that it's visceral too makes me really happy because I want it to be both. I want it to be beautiful and like that kind of gut level response. It has, it has the edge. It has the beauty and it has the
0: sharpness, you know? And I think that's what makes people come back to your books and that's what makes people want to read more. And they're like, oh, yeah, it, it it's it's amazing. I'm so excited to work on them.
1: Well, I could not ask for a better editor. And I actually really do mean that, Davey. Like you put up with me and my insistence on not explaining things because people should just know that, didn't I say? So much fun because, Archie as a writer, you take
0: an idea and you just run with it. And it's one of the most amazing things about you as a writer is how much fun you have in the editing process. And I know it's torturous for you because I can tell like your teeth are grinding, you know? (laughs) And then after the initial like week of, you know, pushing pins into my voodoo doll, like it's amazing. The lengths you take the book.
1: Well, the thing is that when you get them, they're as done as I can make them. Mm -hmm. Like I can no longer see where the book isn't done. So what ends up happening is when you give me occasionally cryptic instructions, it's like, Oh, there's the hole. There's like the, the place that I have to fill in or the door I have to open Mm -hmm. or, and every so often it's something like this character's motivations are mutually contradictory. And then when I stare at it and I'm like, Oh shit, these characters motivations are mutually contradictory. How on earth can I fix that? I have to make this person into two people. Um, And that, was probably actually the largest fix mm-hmm. of all mm-hmm. the forty thousand more words <laughs> that I ended up adding <laughs> to memory, which which you can't tell. Like it's such a mm-hmm. you,
0: you know it's, I can't it's,
1: either anymore. Like I don't remember how the book felt without that. Um, but the here, here's an Easter egg for the listeners. Um, Dekakel onto and Tarats were at one point only Tarats. singular. Like I said, mutually contradictory, (laughs) but I just had one character doing things that I needed two people to be doing. Um, And splitting that up let me figure out a lot of the politics on LaSalle Station Mm -hmm. in a way that I hadn't before.
0: When you were writing Memory, was there anything that surprised you or something you learned from the process?
1: That I could do it at all. Which was both surprising and a thing I learned from. I'd never done it before. I had never written anything longer than about 20,000 words. Um, and I had tried several times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had been years since I had tried because I had found it to be quite frustrating. But I genuinely did not know if I could maintain a story that was that long and was still good and that I wouldn't just get myself stuck somewhere. Um, and I, still i have written now two books and a short book three books um and they're all hard and they're all hard because of figuring out how to maintain a story longer than like 10k i'm innately a short story writer i think i always will be um which does not mean i'm not going to write a whole bunch more novels just that it's it's where you're
0: not naturally
1: like inclined to do yeah
0: Is there anything that you can think of in terms of questions that I should be asking you? Like, when is my (laughs)
1: next book coming? Oh, that. Um, So, I have a novella out next year. Um, I don't quite have a publication date. I think it's August, if everything goes well. And that's called Rose House and it's out from Subterranean Press. And then hopefully the year after that, um, my next long book from Tor, it will be prescribed burn sometime in 2024, which is frightening that that's only two years away. Wait, 2024, 2023. One of those, um, you have the schedule, Davy. Sometime I, I'm writing a book that you get to have and then everyone else gets to have too.
0: So excited, so excited. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Arkady, for doing this. Much appreciated. Oh, this is really fun. Thank you for spending time with us. We really appreciate it, and I hope you had a great time listening to me and Arkady chat about A Memory Called Empire.
1: Yay!